0: Tower, Delta 1855, with you on the SMS bridge visual, 28 right.
1: 1855, runway 28 right, clear to left. 10 left, 28 right, Delta 1855. 256, run runway 1 right, clear for take out.
0: 1 right, clear to go, United 256. Air 4461, run right, line up on
2: Hey everyone, it's Jason, over there's Mark, and this is Flightcast, and we are back. This is an aviation show in pursuit of cool stories as told by aviators, enthusiasts, ATC, plane spotters, and even ramp agents. With me as always is my co-host, my brother from another mother, and the man who wears t-shirts that could protect my entire family from a hailstorm, there's a reason we call him Skyhawk Heavy, Mr. Mark Denton. Hey buddy.
0: Hey man, what's going on?
2: well it's been a minute since we were in here
0: it has been it has been i almost forgot how to do all this
2: not for lack of you trying to get me in here that's for sure
0: uh yeah Uh, (laughs) you know i'm persistent you know that
2: yeah well here we are uh folks thanks for sticking with us we have been on hiatus here at Flightcast since oh before before december and uh there's a good reason for that Uh, newest member of my family arrived uh on December 1st, his name is Nolan, mm-hmm. and uh, he's Nola. great and happy and healthy. Yes, Mark has a... Mark calls him Nola. <laughs> uh, so that's the baby news, but here we are, and uh, Mark, you have some news about uh, a little adventure that you're going on in about a month.
0: Uh, yes, actually, the uh, first uh, week of June, uh, going into the second week, uh going to be venturing out to... Uh, Las Vegas with uh with F D S, Flying Development Studios and heading out there to um to the Flight Sim Expo as we're gonna yes. be an exhibitor out there. So uh looking forward to that. Uh we're still in the process of getting all the details finalized, but um, you know, we'll be there uh having uh having everything set up for people to come out and demo the uh the Flight Sim infinite flight and uh be able to meet Laura Fleet, myself and uh cam is probably going to be there and uh we're trying to get val to come over so awesome we've got a lot of people in the community who are planning on going cool
2: and um so what is uh your role specifically mark th- at uh the expo you're gonna be in the booth
0: uh yeah i'll be in the booth uh i was volunteered to uh organize the whole thing i <laughs> guess with uh the experience that i've got uh with doing these types of expos and stuff uh but uh yeah um you know, we'll just be there uh, to have uh, hands, uh, you know, hands-on uh, access to Infinite Flight to be able to talk to people, answer questions. Uh, I'm there simply, of course, for the entertainment. Of course. But um, but that's about it, man. Um, you know, it's going to be a two-day event. We're going to get there Friday, get everything set up. Uh, the event is on that Saturday and Sunday. And um, so we're looking forward to it, man. It's going to be exciting. We're looking forward to meeting people that we haven't met before in the community as well as other people in the industry. Um, it's going to be interesting, going to be a lot of fun.
2: And this is their first time, uh, uh, running this. So good luck to everybody who's involved in Flight Sim Expo. And, uh, speaking of the event, let's, uh, just pause to learn a little bit more about it. FlightCast is proud to support Flight Sim Expo on June 9th and 10th, 2018 at Flamingo Las Vegas Resort. A new event connecting flight simulation enthusiasts from across the country and around the world, Flight Sim Expo is North America's community-driven simulation conference. Infinite Flight is a sponsor and exhibitor and will join more than 40 other developers in Las Vegas, including VATSIM, X-Plane, Pilot Edge, and so many more. In addition to the latest in Flight Sim technology, attendees will hear from great speakers, win prizes, meet YouTube and Twitch personalities, and be able to try out simulators and products from across the industry. For more information about Flight Sim Expo and to register, visit flightsimexpo.com. The event is just $70 for the whole weekend, and discounted hotel rooms are available for $119 a night. So, Mark, you have a new Instagram account that I would love for you to tell everybody about.
0: Yeah. Um, well, as everybody knows, Skyhawk Heavy, um, that's what I'm listed as on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, YouTube, at Skyhawk Heavy, uh, which is primarily aviation photography. And as you know, I've only been doing this, what, since May of last year, so not even a full year yet. Yeah. Um, which, you know, being a pilot, you know, of course, aviation is my heart and my passion. Uh, but the more I've gotten into the photography, the more I've wanted to explore other venues, uh, other types of photography, and so um, I just created uh, one. What was it? A couple of weeks ago, I guess now. Yeah. Uh, at Mark Denton Photography, um, just uh, just to be able to you know just take pictures of whatever, whenever I'm out and about. Cool. So, you know, there's no, there's really no one type of photography. Um, you know, there could be wildlife, there could be insects, there could be architecture, structure, landscapes, whatever. It's just me just out there exploring, taking pictures and trying to figure out more about photography, man. I, you know, the the art of it in itself has has just been awesome. Beauty. And um, I, I just love it. Absolutely love it. So, yeah, would love for uh, people to swing by and check it out.
2: Yeah, well, we'll share that in our uh, flight cast story on Instagram so that uh, people can... Yeah. Check that out. And uh ooh, more cool news. We have here in Perry Sound where I am in Ontario, Canada, we have on yeah. June thirteenth the rural Canadian Air Force Snowbirds visiting our town, which yes. is very, very cool. And so they're the they would be the equivalent of, you know, I guess the Thunderbirds or the Blue Angels or whatever. Um right. our airplanes aren't quite as cool. They are flying in uh, Tudors, which are training aircraft. But still, Jets. So they mm-hmm. still, they're still they still loud and fast. And um,
0: they, so, yeah, those side by side seaters are very loud, man. Um, it, it's still uh, uh, such a cool little play, man. It's badass. Oh, yeah. That, that's the one demo team that I've always wanted to see ever since I can remember. I mean, I've seen the T Birds, I've, I've seen the Blues. Of course, they're only an hour from me and I go to their practices and all that. But um, I've always wanted to see the Snowbirds. Now, rumor is they're supposed to be down here next month sometime. Awesome. That's a rumor, so hopefully I'll get to see them then.
2: Great. So I'll take some pictures, and then you can take better pictures. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But they're they're here on June 13th. This is uh, 2018, of course, for anyone listening Mm -hmm. in the archives. And uh, so I've been invited to, as FlightCast, to... um, head over when they arrive the day before and their staging area will be the our municipal airport and they've invited me out to the ramp so I can be there when they show up and um, meet some of the crew and then have access to some of them for interviews uh, including a pilot uh, crew chief and uh, a mechanic so that will be fairly awesome and um, uh, we'll be out on a boat on the in the harbor to do some film and, and photography as well when they show up the next day.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, looking forward I'm to that. I'm looking forward to being in Perry Sound with you.
2: <laughs> me too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can't believe FlightCast is paying for me to come out there. That's awesome.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's going to be And great. it
0: works because, it, <laughs> yeah, it's on the tail end. That's the day that I leave Las Vegas is the 13th. So Perfect. it just works out that I connect in Atlanta and just, you know, head straight up to Toronto.
2: Yeah, well, whenever my royalty checks come in, that's when uh, I'll be – sign them over to you <laughs> uh a couple more quick things i want to mention mark uh one is uh, a really really good buddy of mine and if you've seen me uh on instagram with a great big lens on my camera uh it does not belong to me it's uh, belongs to my friend dennis and i used to tour with dennis on the road when we were in a band together uh dennis and his wife crystal who happens to be my cousin has started a youtube channel called smell the pines and uh it's, you can find them at YouTube.com slash Smell the They decided we're going to go on some outdoor adventures and we're going to bring everybody along with us. So they've started that out. Dennis is a great videographer as well. Um, so go check that out. Wanted to give them a little shout out, um, being my buddies. And I might be going on a little camping excursion as a cameraman for them coming up soon. So I'll be sure to share some of that. Interesting. Yes, and and I'm only mentioning that part because it's somewhat aviation-related, but I'm not going to say too much just in case the ducks don't all fall in a row. Um, Lastly, one more shout-out to a good buddy of mine who... Uh, has helped me out with my recording software before I use Ableton Live to record this podcast. My buddy Kevin Swartwood, who actually happened to be my bass player <laughs> in a band with Dennis, he, is, uh, he started his own podcast called Ableton Cast for fans of Ableton. And you might say, wow, a, a podcast about software, recording software, but... Uh, It extends way, way, way beyond that into the realm of live uh, tracking and synthesizers and all kinds of cool stuff. And he's interviewing some really cool people. Uh, He lives in Brighton, England. And uh, so for fans of Ableton or those who just want to learn about recording, search for Ableton Cast on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play Music Podcasts or visit AbletonCast.com and you can find out more about Kevin and what he's doing. That's it for the news. All right. Well, Mark, let's introduce today's guest, if you don't mind.
0: Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. I mean, that's why he's here.
2: That is why he's here today. We're talking to a guy that has been popping up a lot in aviation-related social media. If you were following Flight Chops or Steve O or a friend Owen SJC Spotter, Matt Guth Miller, any of those guys on Instagram at Sun and Fun recently, you've probably seen our guest as well. Mostly photo bombing, I think. He's the owner and founder of <laughs> Angle of Attack and Aviator Training, which has taken a very different approach to flight training in the past. He's also the host of the Aviator Cast podcast and the creator of the Angle of Attack show on YouTube. From his office in Homer, Alaska, Chris Palmer. Welcome to Flightcast, Chris.
1: Thanks guys, good to be here and Jason, congratulations on the new baby. Thank you so and much. And Mark, I was going yep. through your Instagram there and good stuff, man. I really like uh actually really like that new photography channel. That's cool stuff.
0: Oh, thanks man. I appreciate it. He gets I'm lucky really sometimes to figure all this stuff out. Well, yeah. even a blind hog will find an acorn every now and again. So. <laughs> I
2: was actually fishing for that take, com- that comment.
0: <laughs> I take 900 shots to get three. <laughs> <Yep. So. laughs> well, I'm right
1: there with you. It, you know, the magic happens. Not how you think, for
2: sure. True. Exactly. Yeah. So, Chris, thank you for joining us. And um, I know you're a busy dude and you're a that's sort of a one man operation for the most part. So I appreciate you taking time for f- us at flight and hopefully we can sort of cross pollinate a- across our YouTube channels and, and uh, give some people some content they haven't found yet. Uh, yeah, absolutely.
1: It- it's good to be here. I'm always, uh, I'm always excited to be a guest on another podcast because so many people have been good to me in giving of their time. So, you know, it's really a no brainer when I'm asked to do this sort of thing. So happy to be here. Happy to, you know, talk about different flying topics and, and kind of what I see in the industry as well. So should be fun. Yeah, Excited awesome. to talk to you guys and just banter for a bit.
2: And I think your name came up, actually. We interviewed a guy named Dion Mitten um, hmm. last year, and, uh, yeah. and your name came up in his episode. So it's uh, the the flying community, at least the North American flying community, um is not huge in terms of uh, you know, who the players are in really wanting to share content. So um, it just made sense to try and reach out to you. And um, why don't you share, uh, uh, to start out, we love to ask people right out of the gate, where did the love of a- aviation start with you?
1: You know, I remember when I was younger, I would be playing outside with my friends. You know, we'd be jumping on the trampoline or playing with action figures in the yard. And airplanes would always be on approach over our head into the international airport um, where I lived. I lived in Salt Lake City. So I always saw these Delta jets right overhead. And then I would have experiences like going to air shows. Uh, I I remember specifically when I was probably about eight or nine, we went and saw a B-17 in our local airport. Um, My friend's dad was kind of obsessed with airplanes and would do models. And then when I was 12, I got to go up in a small airplane in the back not in the front, but in the back, which was kind of an interesting experience because I ended up um, – I was pretty hungry coming back. So before we left, I got like this gigantic Gatorade and one of those huge slabs of beef jerky that's like two <laughs> feet long. You know what I'm talking about in that, those big boxes? Yeah. <clears throat> so I ate those before we went up, and like I threw up in this little six-sack bag or whatever, and it was cold in the back of the airplane. I just remember throwing up in the bag, sealing it up. And then like holding it close to my body and getting warm from my own puke is kind, of, <laughs> kind of a funny experience.
2: That's what we call a magic moment. Exactly.
1: And that's where the magic started was with puke. <laughs> that's why I got into aviation. But, uh, you know, from there, I I think once you get into high school and you have in high schools these days, you have them trying to push you towards careers or college Um was really interested in the military, but that wasn't going to work out for health reasons. And then the light bulb kind of went on one day. It's like my cousin was at a university in an aviation program. And I thought that I, it never really clicked that you could do that. Like I thought that you just had to go through the military and that's the way it had to be done. But as soon as I heard that, that he was doing that and I could do that too, I was about 16 years old. It was over, you know, from then on out, like within a couple of days I was, Signed up for ground school the next uh, year, my senior year. I was buying books. I was already kind of getting into flight simulation, so it was all over from that point. So pretty early on, um, and then you know, I think, I think kind of overall, I think I continually fall in love with aviation again, like over and over again. I I I really try to find experiences and do things that that keep the passion alive for me. So no matter where I am in the world or what I'm doing, I try to reconnect with it. So I think that's kind of a continual process. It's like kind of keeping a marriage healthy, you know, keeping that love
0: alive, I think, is really important.
2: Yeah, exactly. You just
0: need to have some uh, jet fuel or some half gas uh, on hand. Take a quick whiff of that and you're back in the passion. Exactly. Yep. exactly. <laughs>
2: I just needed a friend like Mark to keep whooping me. Babies, exactly. Baby's yep, born. Too. Not a good excuse, bro. Let's go. <laughs> uh You know,
1: that's an interesting uh and this will kind of dovetail into some of the other stuff we're going to talk about, but that's an interesting um an interesting thing because I was telling you that my baby was born as well in in uh, November 2016, so he's about a year older than your boy, but uh that was kind of an eye opener for me because I was kind of holding myself back and waiting for some projects to get complete and waiting for the business to, to uh, get better before I really started to pursue more in aviation. But when that happened, it kind of like it actually changed the opposite of what you think where I'm like, if I'm going to do it, it's got to be now because it's not going to get any easier with the baby. It's just going to get harder. You know, especially when we're having more kids, it's just going to get more difficult. So that event in my life actually changed everything it's like okay I'm doing it now I'm not waiting anymore
2: right right right. which
1: in in and of itself was a little hard because I missed like I missed some of his uh I was gone for like a month when he was six months old which was not easy but you know when is it going to be easy it's
2: not going to be easy so I just had to do it yeah yeah well uh, hopefully the family is supportive and uh and it sounds like you're off and running so that's awesome yeah Yep, very
1: much so, yep.
2: So, Chris, tell us what exactly is Angle of Attack and uh, how did you get started with it?
1: Yeah, so Angle of Attack actually started about 11 years ago and I started in the flight simulation community where I saw that there was a lack of of knowledge, really. You know, I'd be in these forums or these websites and I'd see that people couldn't answer simple questions on operating these really nice simulations that we have. You know, you have... You have these developers that make very nice, high-quality jets or, or even just uh, Cessnas, and people have no idea what they're doing. They're just kind of uh, flying around aimlessly, um, maybe reading a little bit here and there, but no one really knew how to do it. So I said, okay, I have these video school- skills that I had my whole life. That's kind of something else that I had done is, is video work. So I had these video skills. Why don't I put that together with my aviation knowledge and passion? So I did that. I created a company called Angle of Attack. It was primarily, again, a flight simulation company. I did um, training, very high-quality training on the uh, PMDG 737, 747, 777, MD-11, 767 at one time, and then I also did some other series like Aviator 90 which was a very basic uh a basic like 30 day or no 90 day every other day 45 videos um how to fly like just the basics of how to fly that I think was really helpful for people and then got into some instrument training as well. I did all that when I wasn't a real instructor so it's not like I wasn't you know I wasn't teaching real pilots without the certification. It was just a, a one simulation community guide to another. Um, but that all went really well. Cause I, I had professionals work on all that material with me, seemed to work pretty well. Uh, but I found that the more, the more I stayed in that community, the less I flew. And I was really passionate about just the flying. Like I like to fly, like the perspective of flying, I love aviation. So it was taking me away from the actual flying. So I decided about uh, 2013, when I got married, to make the shift over to real aviation and start to push everything that direction. So that's when I started with some of the other initiatives I have now with the Aviator Cast podcast, um, the Angle of Attack show started about a year ago. Um, and then, yeah, I also have online ground school now at aviatortraining.com. I'm a flight instructor now. I'm a, an instrument flight instructor as well. I just got that done. So I'm very passionate. My, my biggest passion, okay, over and above everything, which has a lot to do with aviation, is, is fixing aviation training because I feel that it's fundamentally broken in a lot of ways. I feel like we have these schools now that just push people through and they get the bare minimum done. And they're focusing on avionics and autopilot and people are losing their stick and rudder skills, We're losing a lot of the original stuff that kind of came up through that uh, mainly those stick and rudder skills that pilots are just losing today. Um, And I do that from a unique perspective of being in Alaska where we have to deal with a lot of that flying into short strips, soft strips, dealing with weather, um, you know, being in the middle of nowhere alone, you know. What what do you think about in those situations and what do you do? So that's where I've taken everything. That's the long and short of where the company has been from the very beginning in flight simulation and and kind of playing around to now where I'm actively trying to change the world if you want to look at it that way. But uh, I I really want to see those changes happen in aviation. And I think with the skills that I have, I'm obligated to do that. So that's, that's where I'm at now
0: that's but cool you sat- that you're doing that honestly um and it's like you said uh, a lot of pilots rely today on the gps and autopilot and stuff of that nature where you know i got my license in 2000 mm-hmm. um, my instructor was from you know he he was an older gentleman uh taught me a lot of things that were not in the uh the flight training manuals yep and so um you know he he made me do, um, you know, the forward slips and stuff like that, which, you know, back then in 2000, you know, they were teaching it, but they didn't make you do it over and over again. He made me right. do it so much till I was comfortable and I actually had to use it into my check ride. Um, the, um, things like, uh, the graveyard spiral, stuff like that, you know, they teach mm-hmm. you that, but they don't actually go through the application. Um, but right. the biggest thing today is the GPS. I mean, ForeFlight is a phenomenal um, application to be able to use on your iPad or any type of mobile device. But it, that takes away from people really truly learning dead reckoning, you know, uh, how to truly navigate, uh, find their way around without the use of a GPS. Right. So yep. it's that's great that you're doing that.
1: And it's an odd world to live in for me because I'm also – I find that I'm also a futuristic thinker. Like I I, I want to embrace technology and I want it to be a part of what we do because I think if it's used correctly, inevitably it'll it'll make us safer pilots. But it can't be the other way around. We're not using the technology to make us safer pilots. You know, once we're safe pilots, it only enhances our situational awareness if we use that. So like in the case of how I train my students, you know, the first three to four to five lessons – I'm covering up the instruments. We're doing a lot of just stick and rudder flying where I'm not letting them look at the airspeed indicator for takeoff or landing. They're actually doing it by feel. They're feeling that wing fly because that's how an airplane flies actually is that angle of attack, interestingly enough. But uh, Mm -hmm. it flies by the angle of attack. So we do all that stuff first, right? They get the stick and rudder skills down. And then once we get in the pattern – they do really
0: well in the pattern once we start hitting that hard. But it's kind yeah, of – go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, it, you know, it's, that's what my instructor taught me. Uh, the first couple of lessons that we went out, uh, he wouldn't let me wear my headset. You know, I wanted to wear my new DCs, huh. and I, I was so proud to wear my new David Clarks. And uh, he's like, no, we're not wearing those. Interesting. And I said, why? And he wanted me to learn the sounds.
2: Right. He wanted me yep. to
0: learn the sound when you're climbing, when you're descending. Um, and so that helped out during unusual attitude training. Um, so, you know, I could hear how the wind sounds, uh, when you're in a dive, uh, or when you're climbing, um, you know, he taught me all of those little things and I'm thankful that he taught me that. Uh, mm-hmm. so now that I have a better understanding, cause if you, if you truly get up into the soup, you know, that's going to help you. Um, when I did, uh, you know, you gotta have so much time of instrument training to get your uh, private pilot. Right. Um well, we always went up in the soup. We never went up on a clear day, never used the hood. We Good. would go up um and that forced me to trust my instruments um and to fly truly on how the plane sounded uh tr- relying and trusting on my instruments like i said and i'm very mm-hmm. thankful for that and that helped me because there's a lot of times that i would you know punch through a hole and try to do some vfr on top but you know how it is a lot of times the clouds will close up now it's right. overcast and yep. you've got to get uh special vfl uh vfr vectors down through the soup through the cover uh to the uh, to the airport so you know I, I was very thankful for all of that and so that's great that you're doing that still Right, and, and what I tell my students is that we
1: have grown up, live, survive on the ground, okay? And all of the perceptions and sensory things we use to survive down here now completely change once we get in the air. And so we have to learn how to use our senses. Maybe taste is the one thing we don't use, but uh, how to use our senses to fly the airplane. And if you don't do it in those very beginning hours – then it's likely the pilot will never get that again because they definitely aren't going to get it if they don't get it in private pilot. And once they get in the instrument, then it's it's just very technical and it's about numbers and headings and and the, the national airspace system. And then they might get a little bit more stick and rudder in commercial pilot, but then you're dealing with a lot of regulations and even more precision. So I find that it has to be in those beginning days. And so I'm very passionate about Getting it done then, but you know, going back to you talking about four flight, I also require and and include in the pricing that I have for my private pilot course an iPad and for flight because I want to teach my students while we're going along doing these things how to use for flight so that the day that they become a private pilot and they leave the nest, they leave my nest, they know how to operate safely. Now, I'm not using that fight as a crutch. I often take it away from them. Don't let them use it for an entire cross country. Um, but little by little, they learn about the system and learn how to manage, which is a big thing, manage uh, what they do as a pilot, which I think is very important because the, the way it was done before, and I found myself getting into this you know you you go through and you do a huge long flight plan it takes you 5 hours to do it when you're just barely starting doing it, it takes forever because you're checking every little number you go out to the airplane using that and, E6B <laughs> right yep the the old E6B and the wind corrections and all the things right. you got to do there and then you go and you do the 1 hour flight so it's 5 hours for a 1 hour flight and then you get up and guess what? The winds are totally different than what you were actually calculated. So now you know stuff is off in a way. It's not that it's a. It's not a useful exercise. It absolutely is. It gives you great situational awareness. But now you have something like four flight, which does a lot of those calculations for you with the most up to date winds. You know you're walking out to the ramp, and then you get a message into your four flight that says you know, warning, this runway is now closed at your destination airport or warning, there's now a TFR at your destination airport. That's the type of stuff we weren't getting before. I mean, it's going to get to the point where we're going to be able to get ATC clearances through the iPad and it's just going to become really simple to use, use that. But again, going back to the very beginning, it can't be, it can't be a crutch to those original stick and rudder skills and the things that are happening um got to make sure those are taken care of first and then the other stuff can come along so that's the longest that's just a little example of how i teach
0: yeah he taught me a couple of things like um uh you know when we were working through emergency procedures like you know if you have to land in a field um one of the first things that you want to do before you actually touch down uh is open your door Mm -hmm. because you don't want that door to get jarred shut uh, right. And then you're not able to get out of the aircraft. Um, you mm-hmm. know, little things like that, um, you know, if if you lose your rudder, uh, how do you steer? Or if you lose your ailerons, how do you steer? You know, just little things that's not taught in the books. Um, he taught me a lot of stuff that he learned growing up. And all of that just really stuck with me and it's helped me out. Now, in your situation up in Alaska, I could see where four flight would be um, definitely helpful, especially with uh, the synthetic vision. Mm-hmm. um yep. you know with the terrain that you guys have i can see where that would be helpful where we don't have much of that here just cell towers and stuff so um but yeah it's it's not relying on it 100 percent, but using it as a tool yep. or even as a backup tool um, a, but,
1: definitely a backup tool yeah i mean exactly. obviously it, i wouldn't want to have my students plan a flight weaving through a canyon and then use use foreflight as a backup with synthetic vision but rather you know, we're doing a normal flight plan. We're we're thinking about controlled flight into terrain, see fit, and then and then you have it there. You know, just in case you wanted to. But we do a lot of VFR flying here, and uh, usually I like my students to be able to see what they're going toward. And, and you know, another thing that has come up that's been pretty interesting is water, because we have a lot of water. I'm on the coastline, south central Alaska, in and in, again in a town called Homer. And we deal with water crossings quite a bit. So, you know, my students get into gliding distances and what altitude you need to be at to cross certain areas. And so looking at the maps and their flight planning that way, and it can be incredibly inconvenient. But if you go down in the drink and you're without, you know, you're outside gliding distance, it's over. It doesn't matter if you have a survival suit. You're likely just not going to live. So that's a lot of thinking for a, a private pilot, you know, to think through all those things. But I want them to think about that stuff because that's what really matters when they go to become a pilot rather than, oh, uh, you know, what headset should I buy or uh, how do – what knob do I turn and what part of the GPS do I get in to go direct? Like, okay. (laughs) Let's let's focus on the stuff that's going to save your life. Mark, have you heard of Live Flight for Infinite Flight?
0: Yeah, man. I've used it to track flights and to see which regions and airports are busy before, you know, planning my flight.
2: Right. Well, as you probably know, a new version of LiveFlight is now available at LiveFlightApp.com. This new version is better than ever and has been rebuilt from the ground up. With a new design, more flight stats, a search feature, and airport information, tracking and planning your flight is easier than ever.
0: Oh, man, I know. And now with the new downloadable KML files, you can download your flight data to any Earth browsers such as Google Earth. It's so cool.
2: Absolutely, and if that wasn't enough, you can now subscribe to Live Flight Horizon, a new service for only $1.99 a month that provides real time, worldwide airport information such as weather, runway data, and charts. It also allows you to search for flights, active ATC frequencies, and airports. And as a Live Flight Horizon subscriber, you'll also get much longer online sessions, and you'll be helping Cam to keep developing and improving this great app.
0: So guys, make sure you head over to liveflightapp.com to give it a try, and also subscribe to Live Flight Horizon. It will make your infinite flight experience so much better.
2: Live Flight is now available in the App Store for iOS. And now, back to the podcast. Chris, do you think social media has played a part in that you know when you just mentioned that uh you know what headset should i buy or whatever there's a lot of us seeing what cool aviators are doing that we look up to and we respect um do you think Mm. that there's maybe not enough of learning the basics that's being being shared out there or is that just up to the up to the cfi you
1: know i i think a lot of it comes down to the life hack culture of Getting things done quickly and getting it done the most efficient way. I think that you know you, you got a lot of schools out there that just want to get it done quickly, and they'll charge you a, a large amount of money to get it done quickly, and they'll even have financing options and things to get it done quickly. But when you're done, it, yes, you have the ticket, but it doesn't mean that you're you're a safe or proficient pilot. It just means you got the ticket. Now those pilots go on to become. Uh, great career pilots. Everything works out in the end because everyone has to go through, you know, building time and experience and they learn the lessons one way or another. But I'm you know, I'm not comfortable leaving my students that way. And and that's kinda hard sometimes because it's expensive, you know. People look at the minimum forty hours and they say, Hey, yeah, I can get it then and I'm saying, Maybe, you know, maybe not. It might take you sixty hours, it might take you eighty. I'm not gonna let you go unless Unless you're ready, and i I see the prerequisites to to go um, thankfully enough i I get pretty close to that forty hour mark if the student is really dedicated but um i you know i I don't think there's anything wrong with having a good kit You know I have a good kit of a Bose headset and a flight outfitter's bag, and I even have a stratus I carry around now it's kind of built into our airplane. I, and I, you know, I run cameras and some different things. I really enjoy having a nice, efficient, again, managed package that I have that I take on my flights and it works really well. I have my iPad, I have ForeFlight, I have all those things that helps me out. Um, So yes, it's important not to get distracted with the toys. I think when people start to get distracted with the really expensive toys in terms of airplanes, that's when we start running into issues of. Uh, what is called the children of the magenta? Those people that are following the magenta line on their GPS, and they don't know the stick and rudder skills. They reach up and hit the yaw damper, and they're relying on that system rather than knowing how to do it themselves, hand flown. Um, yeah. The the know, icon
2: uh, aircraft comes to mind when you say all of that.
1: Yeah, and you know, I, I think it's tough because there are different parts of the industry that have. This, how do I say this nicely? Um, it's a very highbrow section of the industry when we're dealing with uh, companies like uh, Icon and Cirrus, where you, you, you have high powered, wealthy clients for the most part. Okay. Those yep. planes are not cheap. They're not cheap. Uh, air and you, you know. could, right. And you could argue that there are other airplanes in that same category. Um, but, you know, Cirrus is a good example of the bad and the good because in the very beginning, Cirrus pilots were relying on the automation, relying on the the beautiful screens in the airplane, relying on the fact that they had a parachute, and they'd get upside down spinning in a cloud and going 250 knots straight down toward the ground, and they'd panic and pull the chute, and the chute would rip right off, yeah. you know? So what Cirrus did, though, is then they brought it internally and started to do all their training internally at the company, and they reversed from be- having one of the worst safety records in the very beginning, adding all that uh, uh, automation in the early 2000s, to now they've reversed that, and it's one of the safest airplanes because they've taken everything in-house. So the I think the issue is more of a demographic issue when you have high-powered clients like that. They're busy, and they don't have as much time to dedicate to aviation and so they're relying on, on some of those, those nicer things in the airplane. Not saying all Cirrus pilots are like that or all icon pilots are like that. They're not. There are plenty of good pilots to fly those airplanes. But let's not pretend that that's not something that, that, uh, that we have to be cautious about when it comes to those airplanes. Um, you know, I, I think there are, I think there are cautions to have for the very lowest end of airplanes. You know, the beater that has been sitting on the ramp at the airport for, Two years and someone decides that they want to pursue their aviation dream. So they buy the airplane for $10,000. They cut corners on the maintenance and, and go off into the wild blue yonder and have an engine failure. You know, there's, there's that end of it too. That the trauma is, hawk. Right, the trauma hawk. I like that. <laughs> the ramp queen. Yeah. Yep. So there's that end of it too. So, you know, in other words, I'm not absolving anyone in aviation of thinking things through. Everyone needs to think things through in their situation and and, uh, and be the safest they can be because regulatory-wise and just common sense-wise, at the end of the day, it is up to the pilot in command to make the decisions on whether they're going to fly or not. And my new golden rule is I return to my family every single flight. That's what I do. It's a good if plan. If I'm doing something that doesn't fit within that, then I need to break the domino effect or wait or whatever it is. Cause I need that needs to be the end result of every single flight that I take.
2: Yeah, my wife has said to me a few times when I've gone on a, you know a flying adventure with a friend, um, Jay, you have to promise you're coming home. <laughs> okay, right, <I> promise. <laughs> That's the that will be our primary concern. Is is uh, when we after we take off, we will make a successful landing. Um, See, my yeah. ex
0: wife was different. She was just like, Go out, and have fun. I've got the life insurance. And I'm, <laughs> yeah, there you go. But well, you why need you're to tell, antichrist. yeah,
2: <laughs> very, very <laughs> endearing term that he has for his ex wife. Uh, let us let me move us along here. Um, Chris, I've I have a friend who has recently started or is most of the way through his CPL training, and when I asked him, uh, why he was doing that. You know, are you, are you going to, to instruct He said, um, maybe, uh, but I just want to be better. I want to keep learning. Um, so you have, uh, you are teaching, but, um, why don't you, uh, tell us what the most challenging part of the CPL training was for you?
1: Uh, the most challenging part, I, I did actually some podcasts on this and, um, and actually some angle of attack show. Videos. I think it was a three-part video series on my commercial pilot training. So those are good resources to go to for the full story. But I think if I look at it from top down, the most challenging thing for me was that I I was out of being proficient in aviation for a while when I went full bore into the CPL training. So I was giving myself more credit than I deserved. A lot of the knowledge that I had had lapsed. Some things I just flat out forgot. I'm 10 years older or more than I was when I had begun my training, so a lot of it was just lost. So when I went into the training, I was immediately humbled by just how much I didn't know and how terrible I was at flying the airplane and things did not go as smoothly as I planned. And at the end of the day, the commercial rating ended up being the most difficult one I had for that reason, but also it really tested my resolve as a pilot in that everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong the airplane broke um my dpe a dpe is a an faa examiner that gives you the test the dpe i was going to use got food poisoning so bad that he had to be hospitalized um i i went to california to get my training done thinking okay sunny california i can knock it out it rained every single day it did (laughs) not let up um I was away from my family. That was difficult. I was running low on money. Like it was just one thing after the other. It got to this point pretty near the end, like actually uh, several days before it ended. And I think this is kind of like, I don't know if you want to call it the spiritual place I had to get to or just the mental place, but I just had this moment where it's like, okay, everything is working against me. I'm not leaving California until I get this done. I'm here to stay. I'm, you know, I'm getting it done no matter what. And then everything kind of started to click into line from then on out. So I think as we go through licenses and anything that's kind of preventing us from reaching that higher goal, we have to keep in mind that there are forces out there that are trying to prevent us from becoming our better self, and we have to push through them. And there's just no other way except for what I call PhD, which is passion, hard work, and determination. You have to push through that stuff, find a way to make it happen, take the next step every, you know, always. And uh, I was, you know, I was very grateful that it was hard because my ultimate goal was to become a flight instructor to, you know, get into what really matters to me, which I, I shared earlier, which is changing training for the better. And the reason I'm grateful for it was because now I can empathize with those going through the same thing. And I face just about every challenge that people face in going through this process. So very recently i can actually attest to that you know it just wasn't handed to me like i had to earn the money to do this myself i had to uh face all those challenges i didn't just have i didn't get it when i was 18 you know when i should have um and it it just all really worked out and so i'm really happy for that process it's pretty it's not very typical for the commercial rating to be difficult cuz at that point most people are just proficient and they've got up to 250 hours and and it's kind of just a, a formality, which I thought it was going to be. You know, I had, I had 800 hours at the time and 600 hours of bonanza time, which is complex retractable gear. And I just thought it was going to be easy and it wasn't. So yeah, I'm, I'm really happy for that process, but it's not like that for everyone. But I guess the lesson is that you are going to come up against barriers at some point in training or in your aviation career, and you have to keep taking the next step and find a way to power through. That'd be my message for my commercial training.
2: I, I got to hand it to you, man. I I watched some of that and your, your, your uh, CPL training and, Man, you you have to have a good amount of humility to post that on YouTube. <laughs> I have to say, Yeah. like it's <laughs> it's a beatdown. I I don't know if I'd be able to put videos of my sucky landings uh, over and over and over. Not that that was necessarily the case with you, but I I don't know. We're not a, we can, we all can't land the plane like Skyhawk Heavy perfectly every time. You know, exactly.
1: So. Just a greaser oh, every sure. time. I mean,
2: we can't all <laughs> yeah, do yeah. that. Yeah. Can't all do it. <laughs> Cool. So well, I appreciate you sharing all that with us. And, um, yeah. so the next, the next step in the journey is the, uh, CFI. So, um, is this, is this available to people yet? Uh, on um, YouTube?
1: you mean, uh, no, the it's CFI not. Training? So no, okay. I've been, I've been so busy opening my flight school and actively giving instruction that my YouTube show kind of came to a screeching halt. Um, so yeah, it's not necessarily available publicly yet. Uh that's going to be coming along here pretty soon. I do have a very busy summer, but man, I I love doing the video stuff and I'm excited to get the story out there. But you know, my ultimate goal was to was to be an instructor and to be an educator and it's kind of interesting because for me <clears throat> it's actually my end goal. Like that this is where I want to be. I want to be in education. I have no intentions of going to the airlines. Um, that's not to say that I don't want some side jobs as a commercial pilot because I want to stay, I want to stay fresh and relevant in the sense that I don't want to be just an instructor. I want to be someone that's been there and done some things and seen some bad weather and had an employer push me and, and that sort of thing. So I'm seeking opportunities to do that, especially with the, the tourism industry up here in Alaska. But, um, you know, I'm very passionate about the educational side of it. Uh, went through my CFI training down in Oshkosh off season from the actual Air Venture show and had just a wonderful time there with a mentor of mine, John Dorsey, and, and many of the other people around there, like uh, Steve Krogh down at Hartford, who do primary instruction in Cubs, um, and then John Schmeel up in Wausau, who's just the, you know, if I could emulate anyone, it would be John Schmill and and John Dorsey, those two guys. And you'll hear a little bit of that in podcasts that I've done with them. But you know, one thing I try to do in in getting my education and and continually learning is finding those I want to emulate, finding those mentors that I want to gather knowledge from. Because part of the issue with all of this stuff that's happening, from the Stick and Rudder Skills to Foreflight to the Children of the Magenta, is the guys that have been there and and brought up aviation over the years are retiring, they're going away, and the knowledge that they have is going away and so it's up to people like me to preserve that knowledge, to keep it alive, to keep the stick and rudder skills alive and and so that's why I glom on to these uh to these guys that that do a great job so had a great time in my cFI training and then I just got my double eye training done, which means I can now teach instruments. And I got that done down in North Carolina with another great outfit down there that uh, called Cape Fear Aviation Flight Training that does a great job. So I'm continuing learning myself. I think that's one of the reasons I'm totally willing to post bad landings on YouTube because a pilot should always be progressing and going to the next step and becoming better at what they do no matter what it is they're doing. So I want to show that I myself am human. I'm in the process myself. I'm just more steps ahead than some people. So that yeah. that's why I like to share the story just the way it is rather than try to have people perceive me as some perfect pilot, which I'm not. And no one is. I, I think if you have a guy that says he's the perfect pilot and he's awesome and he seems awesome, that's that's the type of guy I actually don't really want to fly with. I, it makes me feel uneasy. I feel like I'm missing something. Like maybe they're not good at decision making or whatever it is, but. Uh, you feel
0: like you want to throat punch them.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. maybe. we perfect just,
0: pilot. Oh, well, you must fly an Airbus because it's all computerized and, you know, <laughs> you don't have to do anything. So you're really not a pilot since you fly an Airbus because all you do is push buttons. Right. right. Loves Airbus. right. Uh, well, you, we could get into that, but probably won't. <laughs> yeah. Airbus versus no, like, Boeing. I'm just a uh, yoke no. guy, man. Um, we, we did I'm an episode of... Yoga.
2: We did an episode of Airbus versus Boeing with a couple of um, airline pilots, so we'll, we'll reference, oh, nice. reference that one and, and you can go find that on our website. Uh, Chris, you did mention at one point uh, earlier in the episode about uh, flying in Alaska being quite different. So, so tell us more about that. What is it like uh, flying and teaching students uh, up there in Alaska?
1: Yeah, so when you do your private pilot training, you're required to do a number of maneuvers and you're, you know, uh, Mark was alluding to it earlier, even things like VMC into IMC, which is basically you're in the clear, you're, you're flying VFR, visual flight rules. You can see where you're going and then you get in the clouds and now you got a problem because you have to rely off of instruments. Um, it's still one of the number one killers in aviation so because we deal with weather and we're flying in marginal weather, there's that risk. Um, uh, the maneuvers in private pilot, the the ones that kind of stand out to me are the takeoffs and landings that are required. So you're required to do uh, short field, soft field, and then normal and crosswind. And there's even some confined airport stuff that you find that jumps out in private pilot in the private pilot ACS. So, The truth is, is that when you go to an airport here, you're dealing with very few large paved runway airports. The rest of them are small gravel strips. They may not be soft, but they're small and they're confined and they have uh, trees on all sides. And then you're dealing with wind and all sorts of different things. So what ends up happening is you end up combining a bunch of those to actually make it work and do it safely. So when someone comes up here, they're not only dealing with weather, watching the weather, get finding the time to fly those hours uh, in between where we can fly. And it tends to work out pretty well in my particular part of the state uh, to fly almost every day. And then, um, and then actually going to those places where they're challenging. You know, most private pilots, when they go through their training, they're doing their short and soft field operations and confined airport operations. They're doing it on a 10,000-foot runway or 4,000-foot runway, but it's paved, and they're not really dealing with those challenges. So when they get in the real world and they see those trees coming at them for the first time, you know, it, it's not that the performance isn't exactly what it said it was going to be in the manual. It's just intimidating. You know, you're you're looking down the runway at these trees, and they're coming at you, and the tendency for pilots is to pull up and and, well, some people have the tendency to pull up, but I think a well-trained pilot won't pull up and stall. But um, seeing those things happen in the real world, seeing the the actual process of flight planning and safety and weather, all of that combined really gives people a sense of uh, of how how to go out on their own now and be able to face different challenges that they may have not only with weather but the types of airports that they can fly in and honestly a lot of that goes directly back to those stick and rudder skills cuz you can't just you can't just carry all the airspeed you want and come in on final and float down the runway you've got to you've got to be Johnny on the spot at the right airspeed in fact airspeed is usually your enemy when it comes to these shorter strips and and then you've got to, you know, do the other technique. So it's, it's kind of interesting because you end up even combining things. So you're not only doing a short strip, but it's a soft technique and it's at a confined airport and you've got to slip it in as well to get down in there. So you start getting all these extra things and I think it just rounds people out a little bit better. Um, you're not going to get great air traffic control up here. We've got one class Charlie airspace in Anchorage which is very busy. It could easily be a Bravo, but doesn't need to be. Um, You're not going to get the experience of really learning the radio like you would in somewhere like LA, but you're going to get a lot of those other things that you're probably never going to get again by flying up here. So I think there are a lot of advantages to it. Um, It's beautiful. I really encourage my students to just enjoy the journey because it goes by so fast so I tend to take a lot of pictures for them because they're just so, you know, enraptured and in, in doing everything correctly and right that, uh, you know, I tend to step back and relax a little bit and take pictures for them as we go along. It's just a it's a really wonderful experience to fly up here and we get to see the reason we fly every day just from the beauty, you know, from going up and being able to go somewhere and do a new adventure. And, and I try to wrap that into our training a little bit too. And we're doing our cross countries going and doing something fun. So it's a blast. I enjoy it. I think most of the students to come here, enjoy it. I I've only heard good things so far So It's, it's a
2: beautiful place to fly for sure. Guys, I'm going to, uh, I think, I think this is a good, actually a good place to leave it. Um, but Chris, is there anything else that you want to kind of make listeners aware of or, you know, plug some products or some anything that you're doing right now?
1: Yeah, so we actually talked about, uh, about kind of those steps that Mark was talking about to becoming a pilot and some of the things you kind of need to do to become prepared. Um, one thing I've done recently, just because I feel there's a need, is I've created something called Guide to the Sky and guide to the sky is a three part video series where I take you through a lot of what's required to even get to the point where you start training because there are things to keep in mind medically and, and license wise and, uh, money wise and getting spousal permission and all of these things. So I created that, uh, that series, which is free. You can go to my website, aviatortraining.com and get guide to the sky. Um, I find that it's just really helpful because it, it, it answers a lot of those initial questions people have about, you know, I have this medical issue. Can I fly? Or I've only got this so much money. How much, what do I do? How much time does it take? Um, a lot of those questions. And what's the process, what the process is like. So I walk you through kind of the the process of the flight training in, in basic form. You know, what you're going to do in the first third and the second third and the last part and the check ride and when you get your license and all that. So it answers a lot of these questions and a lot of this, maybe these terms that we've been loosely using that maybe people don't recognize uh, that will help you really understand what to do. And then I also give you a little bit of guidance on how, how to find a good flight school and a good flight instructor, which I think is a big question that we all have is, you know, how do we find those great people that we're kind of talking about and, and not find a bad experience For the most part, you're going to find a good experience in aviation, but there are those places out there that that you shouldn't fly with. So, Guide to the Sky, that's on AviatorTraining.com. Of course, there's a podcast, AviatorCast, the Angle of Attack show. I'm very active on Instagram, at Angle of Attack. So, love talking to people there and, and sharing in this passion. So, yeah, that's the the long and short of what I'm doing. If any of you are ever up in Alaska and you want to get a little bit of flight training while you're enjoying the scenery here, and uh, and and learn some of these things we've been talking about, I'd love to um, live, love to give you some instruction. That's also at aviatortraining.com. So that's my spiel. That's my uh, that's my salesman for two minutes. Fantastic. Well, now, what
0: would it look like if you had a CFI? named skyhawk heavy flying at angle of attack that would just be phenomenal that would yeah yeah i mean and you got to use the radio
1: you got to use your call sign as well every time you call in this is skyhawk heavy left
2: base runway 22 yep
0: (laughs) (laughs) so definitely gonna be using that nice well chris hopefully we can
2: um catch up with each other at an event sometime soon and uh Until then, Amanek, thanks again for making time for us. I know you're a busy dude, so uh, we'll see you on Instagram. And and, uh, good luck with all of the flight training and everything that you're doing.
1: Appreciate it, guys. Keep flying, and as I always say, throttle on.
2: That was Angle of Attack's Chris Palmer, and he joined us today via Skype from Homer, Alaska. You can find Chris on Instagram and Facebook at angle of attack at youtube.com/slash angle of attack and on his website at aviatortraining.com. Thanks for listening. For more of the podcast, visit flightcast.audio and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or YouTube. You can find us on social media at Flightcast Audio. Flightcast is brought to you by Linkhouse Media on the web at linkhousemedia.com. I'm Jason Rosewell, hosting with me as always with Skyhawk Heavy. Thanks for listening and happy landings.